This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Greetings and welcome to Berkeley Conversations COVID-19. I'm Dan Mogola from UC Berkeley's Office of Communications and Public Affairs. Recently, our Institute of Governmental Studies, the IGS, together with the California Institute of Health Equity and Action, conducted a poll in California to gauge opinion about the COVID pandemic and its impact. It was one of the first polls of its kind in the country. The results were striking, to say the least, and we're fortunate to have with us three faculty experts who helped conduct the poll and analyze its findings. G. Christina Mora is a co-director of the IGS and an associate professor of sociology. Eric Sheckler is the other co-director of the IGS and a professor of political science. And Hector Rodriguez is the director of the California Initiative for Health Equity and Action and a professor of health policy and and management. Excuse me. If you're watching this through Facebook Live, feel free to post any questions you may have as we go along, and we'll do our best to answer. So what I want to do to start off is sort of go around the horn here and ask each of you, starting with Christina, what were a couple of findings that jumped out at you from the poll, and why did they jump out, and what do they mean? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having us on, Dan. We really appreciate this. Um, Sure. I think one of the biggest trends that uh, stuck out at me was just really the sort of racial and class differences that we found across the board. So going into the poll, we knew to some extent that COVID would exacerbate the existing racial and class inequality across the state, but we didn't know how much and in what ways that this would be the case. And so we designed a series of questions that would not only sort of gauge who fears COVID the most or who sort of feels that it's a much more of a threat to their health than their economics, but also questions about who's actually being more exposed uh, to some extent to COVID. Um, and, you know, for me, the, the results were quite stark. Um, I'll just share a, a couple of slides that speak to this. Um, let me go. Here we go. Um, so in this first slide, you'll see... In this first slide, you'll see um, a really a stark difference between, so on the one hand, Latinos, Asians, and Blacks were all much more likely to say that COVID was a serious threat to their health, much more likely than whites to say that, for example. So we knew that the belief of the threat or the perceived threat was already there. But we also found that racial minorities were also more in situations that were they were more likely to be exposed to COVID. So on this first slide, you'll see uh, there's a 20 point difference between whites and Latinos, for example, on who is uh, able to work from home safely. On our other slide, you'll see, for example, who is more likely to report that they not only have to leave their home to go to work, but also Uh, work in proximity to others. So you can imagine the grocery store clerk that has regular contact with customers, the people keeping Home Depot, Costco, you know, CVS pharmacies open. All of these uh, are in situations where they're, you know, are less likely to be able to go to work and self-isolate there or uh, stand behind uh, an office wall. And so not only were minorities more likely to fear the effects of COVID, they were also 
more at risk. And the other, um, the other type of risk or the other fear that we looked at were the impacts of COVID on sort of economic risks, right? To how much, to what extent is COVID been a threat to your economic situation? And we also see here stark differences. If we just look at this um, first table with, uh, we asked our respondents to what extent is COVID a serious threat to your ability to pay for basic needs? food, shelter, things of the sort. And we see a real stark racial trend here with racial minorities reporting that the effects of COVID directly uh, is really threatening their ability to uh, afford their basic needs. So when I think of this on the whole, you know, not only are minorities more threatened and scared of COVID, they're also much more exposed and it has serious dire consequences uh, even in California for them. So let me come back to it. Something you said that the poll revealed or showed that you know there's even greater level of inequality. I'm a layperson. I always thought polls are about opinion and perspective, and perceptions. But you seem to suggest that. So let me just ask you: Are these polls about how people feel, or can we actually derive? Should we have confidence that their feelings are actually a reflection of reality? So it's both, right? I mean, our data is only as good as folks will give us, you know, truth. Folks will answer it truthfully. We can't, um, you know, we can't, um, we have to rely on their, their being able to give us truthful answers. So on the one hand, there is the perception. So if I, I might feel that COVID is not a serious threat to me, um, and someone that looks exactly like me, the same social status situation might feel just that uh, it is a threat to them, right? And so that might just be differences of opinion and perception. That's why we asked who's actually leaving the home for work, right? Because we know that leaving and being in situations where you're around others, grocery store clerk, in fact, we created an occupational category just for this uh, poll that hadn't been used before. And it was the category we named it essential retail. So who are who are uh, in those retail positions that are not, for example, clothing store or hat stores, but the grocery stores, the hardware stores that were still open, the pharmacy stores, right? Deemed essential non-medical workers. And 100% of the people uh, that checked that they were in this essential retail categories were either Black or Latino. Wow. So... so it was this measure of actually who's out there being exposed still during this moment of shelter in place. So we're going to come back. I've got a number of other questions about this because it's super yeah. interesting. But for right now, before I move on to Eric, was there anything about those findings you just discussed? Was there anything that surprised you? I just didn't think of the severe. I mean, we also asked, you know, having been a scholar of racial inequality in the United States, I would think that there would be uh, these stark differences. I didn't think that they would be this big. I didn't think that 100% of the people saying that they were in essential retail would be this large. Um, and I think also we were able to devise some questions about whether you fear for your family members, right? If you think of racial minorities, Asians, Latinos, Blacks are much more likely to live in multifamily situations, right? Multi-generations have grandparents, grandkids. And if you think of the fact that already there's economic inequality, and so some these folks are also in these essential retail and then coming home in these sort of multi-family situations, I think that, um, 
you know, the data gives us a good sense of who's more at risk and who's, who's being exposed. I think um, the worry about their families um, uh, and the situations, we had thought that maybe because they were, uh, you know, much more likely to be economically impacted, that they were also more likely to want to get the economy started again, to be against shelter in place. And we found actually the reverse was true in a real surprising way that minorities were actually just as likely or slightly more likely to want to keep shelter in place going, even though, you know, COVID had much more uh, reportedly directly uh, impacted their finances. And so even though we found minorities were burdening much of the economic risk of COVID, they weren't necessarily quick to want to get the economy restarted and open up again, in part because they also shoulder so much of the health risk too. Yeah, really interesting. We're going to come back to this, but Eric, let me turn to you with the same question. Which findings jumped out and why? The most striking findings had to do with partisan polarization. So, um, you know, it's a become pretty well established that Democrats and Republicans in the United States are deeply divided, but you might've expected that a global pandemic might bring people together and erode partisan differences. And what we found is at least in some important ways, some pretty big differences between especially those who approve of President Trump and those who disapprove and how they think about uh, the response to COVID. So I'm just gonna put up a slide that summarizes a little bit of that gives us flavor for those results. So one question we asked is whether you're more worried that shelter in place will end too soon, um, thus exposing people to health risks, or are you more worried about it lasting too long and leading to greater economic damage? And the blue bars are those who disapprove strongly of President Trump. And you see about 90% of them are more concerned about shelter in place ending too soon and fewer than 10% worry that it will go too long. Whereas we see basically the reverse among Trump approvers. They uh, are much more worried about the economic damage and much more eager to get the economy going again. Um, So that's one on a big policy issue that you see a a big difference. We also see some differences that maybe play more to your personal beliefs or behavior with respect to COVID. So we saw differences in views about the effectiveness of social distancing. And um, we have uh, the column here we show we asked, how concerned are you about spreading COVID to others? And those who disapprove of Trump are much more concerned than those who approve of Trump. Uh, and then finally, having to do with the scientific out- evidence, you know, who do you turn to for information to trust scientific experts when it comes to information about COVID? So we see across this kind of range of, of attitudes and behaviors, uh, some indications of important partisan differences and now we're seeing that playing out even more so with, with some of the debate over use of masks, where um, you know, the president has sent much more of a mixed or ambivalent message about that. And we're seeing a, a fair number of Trump supporters who are um, showing greater reluctance to wear masks, even in public places like grocery stores. Anything surprise you? Well, I mean, I think to, to a certain extent, we've come to expect this partisan polarization um, yet I think where, where it surprised me a little bit has to do with the individual behavior that when we ask people about, you know, how effective is social distancing, how effective is wearing a mask, um, 
those are the kinds of things where you might expect to see more of a consensus. And we saw some real differences between the parties there. And I think that was at least somewhat surprising. We're going to talk more after we give Hector a chance to weigh in about this whole issue of polarization and why one's political beliefs would it impact your attitudes about public health measures. Um, But Hector, let me turn to you. The findings that jumped out and why they jumped out at you. Sure. I'll just pick up where Eric left off. And the one area that surprised me I won't show data about is uh, support for farm worker protections among voters in the state. Uh, I expected to see a political divide here. And what we see is overwhelming support uh, for protections for farm workers for paid sick leave, for enabling social distancing, for employers providing hand washing stations and other uh, protective equipment for them. So I think even though we do see Trump, uh, those who approve of Trump having less support of these things, on the whole, the vast majority, even among those who are Trump supporters, um, do support these protections. And that's a real place where we can coalesce in the state around and uh, move forward supportive policies. Another uh, thing that's been clear as part of this COVID-19 pandemic is people's fears of employment insecurity and job instability. And the traditional way that we get our health insurance coverage is employer-based. And this is an outlier. Other countries do not have employer-based insurance for the most part. They have national insurance programs. And as unemployment happens, individuals are really scared about losing their health insurance. And so we were interested in comparing, you know, now that these economic insecurities have reared their heads, compared to the past, how do uh, Californian voters feel about a single-payer option or Medicare-for-all kinds of programs? And what I'll do is I'll share some of those findings with you that haven't been out on press, so these are fresh, kind of um, hot off the press. <laughs> and what we see here is... Um, You'll see in the blue bar, dark blue bar on the left, uh, left-hand side, that those are those who strongly agree with the statement that a single-payer health care system, such as Medicare for all, all, in which Americans would get their insurance from a single government plan, would improve the nation's ability to respond to disasters and pandemics, such as COVID-19. And we see here over 55% of California voters agreeing or somewhat agreeing with the statement. Uh, those who disapprove of Trump have 74% agreement with the statement, and only 4, 16% of uh, Trump supporters do believe that a single-payer system uh, would uh, help uh, respond to these uh, emergencies. But on the whole, we see compared to the past, where California voters were at 41% supportive of a single payer. We now see this tipping over 50%. Now the questions are a little different. This is about ability to respond to disasters and would a single payer option work? So it's not deliberately asking individuals to give up their private insurance, although that's implied by the question. And we do see here greater support for uh, the idea of single payer here. And what was really striking to me with related to these is the data when we disaggregate them by race and ethnicity, uh, Asians, Blacks, and Latinos have over 60% support uh, agreement for single payer, whereas whites are about 50% uh, irrespective of political party. And where we see the divergence is actually among Native Americans and others who have less than 50% support agreement. But the major ethnic and racial groups in in the state uh, have changing attitudes, more open to the idea of single payer 
because we think this pandemic has uh, uncovered a lot of the insecurities associated with um, job-based healthcare, employment-based healthcare. So I, I wonder if, for, you know, for those, a lot of people talk about their hopes and wishes that there is some good that comes out of these extraordinary times. Should people like this, for those who support the idea of single payer, for those who support the idea of greater support and benefits and services for farm workers, should they be heartened by this and believe that the, that these numbers could represent a sustainable or lasting shift in attitudes? Hector? I think for the farm workers, uh, COVID has clearly highlighted the dependency uh, on farm workers. We all have experienced shortages of getting the things we need at the grocery stores, and that um, is making a connection, I think, to the public. And so I think this farm worker support is ripe for policy change and, and sort of the train has left. And I think what we'll hopefully see is more public support for protections for them. The single payer is a hairy issue. And we know that, um, that it's a long pathway to getting that. And that there are many intermediate solutions that could take us in a direction to have universal coverage. I think the data bode well for universal coverage. The mechanism by which everybody's covered is a little hairier, and I don't think we can draw inferences about that from these from this question. But I think the temperature indicates that the public is willing to move and change the healthcare system in a dramatic way uh, to ensure that we're more protected and can better respond to these. I think the public has seen ventilator shortages. We've seen PPE shortages. We know we have an uncoordinated healthcare system, and I think what the data reflect is an appetite for broad change in the healthcare system to prevent these deficiencies from happening again. So let me ask, I wanna pose a question to all three of you. Um, as a lay person, I've always, I, I consume polls around presidential elections because I wanna know who's ahead, who's behind. It's sort of like a spectator sport. It's almost like reading the standings for baseball, but can polls like these affect change? What besides sort of a curiosity, how, how do you look at polls? What's their utility? Um, what good are they other than getting an idea of how our neighbors think? Let, let me, Christina, let me come to you with that one. Well, I think getting a sense of what our neighbors think is really important. And policymakers, you know, so lay people pay attention to it, but policymakers really pay attention to it. And elected officials, when they're trying to figure out, you know, a lot of this is trying to figure out of all the things that we can pay attention to, of all the needs, things that need money, things that need our attention, where is it that I should go, right? We don't have endless limited resources to address that. At least elected officials might think that. And so polls are a good way to gauge the temperature. Does something like uh, providing medical benefits for farm workers during this time, right? Is, is this the moment? And so the poll provides that, you know, it strikes me, we didn't ask a question about meat packers, right? And we didn't ask this question about essential retail, but had we done that, right? Uh, maybe there is a, a chance or an opportunity here for thinking about new policies developing. And also, you know, if you've got such a high 80% of Californians supporting the sort of medical benefits for farm workers, that's, that's, a, that's a large amount that goes beyond the Republican-Democratic sort of spread, as Hector was saying, right? And so maybe it also gives us a chance to see where the nation can converge, right, and go beyond polarization. Yeah. Eric or Hector, anything you either of you would like to add to that? I mean, I guess I would add um, that it also gives us a chance to see when our 
when is the news perhaps unrepresentative of what's going on? Yeah. So, for example, we had the big protests against shelter in place. where big protests and certain the public actually supports keeping shelter in place. And that puts in perspective those very loud voices of folks showing up to the state houses in Michigan. So literally, it seems like um, you've frozen there for a second, so I'm just going to pick up that the poll reveals literally a, a silent majority or a quieter majority. Hector, anything you want to throw in on that particular question about the utility yeah. of polls and their importance? I guess in the, the revised governor's budget, uh, there were a lot of supportive programs that had to be cut out of necessity given the tax base uh, shrinking and all of that. But these polls lend insight into prioritization um, as uh, these cuts are made and sort of what the public really cares about um, in that window of opportunity. Um, clearly, you know, with the budget situation, not everything that has public support can become policy, but at least it provides some insight into the prioritization of those issues. So I want to go, we've got a couple of questions that have come in off Facebook Live that revolve around the same thing. And it's people asking whether you saw any differentiation in the responses based on the respondents' geography within California, rural, urban, exurban, et cetera. Can one of you address that? Talk about how that shook out? Hector, please go ahead. I can definitely talk about that because it relates to the farm worker finding. Um, so the one geographic variation that we saw there was the Central Valley and Inland Empires having substantially less agreement, actually opposition to the ideas of individuals, uh, farm workers getting protections, uh, having family uh, paid sick leave and health benefits and the like. So it was quite um, sobering to see that their neighbors where the where they have more interaction with these workers is where they have the most opposition. Um, so we saw one in four, uh, 25% of Central Valley voters, irrespective of the party, actually disagree with protections for farm workers. So we clearly see that um, jarring uh, difference. In contrast, in the Bay Area and LA, opposition is less than 10% uh, Interesting. for these protections. Christina or Eric, did uh, either of you see geographical dif differentiation in terms of the areas you were focused on? So I think the bigger one is um, in the far north and some of our redder counties uh, inland, we're much more likely to uh, want to end shelter in place and start reopening the economy. And that wasn't surprising. It maps on to basically, uh, you know, how California in some ways is an exception, but in, in many other ways, it's also a deep reflection of the nation. We have our red counties. We have places uh, with strong Trump approval. Uh, and we saw that in the data, too. Um, you know, so one of the things that I want to ask all of you about this that really jumps out, and it's every poll we see these days, that, um, and that's the polarization that you all talked about in one form or another. And I think there were many of us who thought, like, how could um, sort of basic epidemiological concepts become fodder for political argument? But they have been. It, it, exactly that has happened. What do you think this pretends for the country? What does it say about the election? And COVID shining a pretty bright light on this stuff, on these divisions um, and how we deal with what used to be considered neutral facts. You guys are all experts, sociologists, political scientists. Eric, let me start with you. Look into that crystal ball and what's this telling you? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that this was really an opportunity in some ways uh, for 
us to see uh, the government respond in a way that that goes against type that's not the typical polarization. Uh, we've seen a few handful of Republican governors really respond to this in a way that was much more proactive and similar to a lot of the Democratic governors, so something like Mike DeWine in Ohio. But President Trump has returned to the playbook that he's gone to time and time again, which is premised on rallying his base. And I think in the short term, that may well be effective in terms of, you know, uh, winning the news cycle for his core supporters and rallying them against some of these public health provisions. But I think, you know, thinking a little bit ahead, you know, in the, in the long run, if this leads to more cases, for example, in the fall, um, and, a, you know, that in turn is going to hurt the economic recovery that he's going to depend on for his reelection. And so it's not this kind of short term. We're seeing is the damage caused by the short term approach, this lack of a focus on governmental effectiveness, a focus on public health. And, you know, I think we're seeing some of the really bad consequences of that. And at least there's the potential for it for, to backfire on the president, in which case maybe that would teach a lesson to both, you know, really across the political spectrum that at least sometimes you have to take science and public health more seriously than the short-term political battles. Hector, what do you think? What, what does this all pretend, this polarization around? Yeah, I think that- one clarifying, clarifying point I just wanted to put out there is the polls are lopsided. We have a two-to-one balance on the poll. So two, uh, those who approve of Trump are one, and those who disapprove are two for every one in California voters. So just to be clear that these polls aren't pulling uh, in equal force. Um, second, I think nationally, the polarization makes us very vulnerable to outside influence like we've seen in the last election. It's easy to play on our divisions and uh you know, outside influences taking advantage of these, uh, the fact that we're so polarized. So I do worry about the level of polarization and its impact on outside influence. But I think in the state, with respect to policy change and getting things done, we have to realize that the poll is lopsided and that it's a two to one polarization. So before we go to Christina, I want to ask you, and this is coming up on Facebook right now, are you saying that we have to keep in mind that California demographically and politically is quite exceptional within the context of the United States? Hector? California is the future of the United States. So it's, it's sort of a canary in the coal mine as to what Kansas is going to go through, what North Carolina is going, is going to go through in a, in a decade or two. You mean, um, do, you so mean, I, do you mean demographically? Demographically and politically. Um, that comes with that. And so I think these may seem maybe outliers uh, for us in California, but the de- demographics are shifting in a way where the rest of the country is going to look at us and like us and politically is going to be uh, composed just like California, potentially. Great. So, Christina, I want to come to you with the same question, your take on the, the meaning and of polarization, what it pretends. Um, but also be, before you go there, just an interesting question, again, from Facebook here. What were the demographics of the people who polled? I'm assuming they were, as much as to the extent possible, a reflection of the actual demographics of the states. But, you know, I think people have concern that maybe the poll didn't look at everybody or just looked at a slice of the California population. So a two-part question for you. Yeah, so I'll answer the second one first. Um, you know, we ran the poll April 16th through the 20th, so it's dependent on who answered our email at the time, which doesn't mean that you are going to get an accurate reflection of California. 
But all the analysis that we have here are based on what we call weighted data, which are weights that we place so that our data can actually then reflect the registered voter population. So we are missing a key demographic that could shift some of the findings. And that key demographics are sort of all those that are not likely voters, all those that are unregistered. So we don't have the undocumented answering these polls. We don't have uh, legal permanent residents. The only people that answered the poll were registered voters. So that gives us, you know, some sense, but it also skews, you know, the amount to which we were saying who's at risk, for example. Okay, Um, now part one. (laughs) The harder question. So uh, my, you know, Eric and Hector are good at sort of telling us how difficult uh, political polarization is going to make the elections. And I'll give a pitch for uh, the opportunity that we have here, too. So on the one hand, yes, we're much more vulnerable. And this is definitely Trump is playing to his playbook. Uh, but I think as sort of the pandemic wears on and people really see the economic hit across the board, you know, uh, you know, uh, professionals are going to see an economic hit um, across racial groups. There'll be an economic hit. Then this is becomes an, an opportunity to really think about a new normal, right? And this is where I think civil society, nonprofits, activist groups, unions can come together and be amongst those to really create and chart out that this is not business as usual. We cannot have the same policies. We cannot go back to the same type of scapegoating. We need a new blueprint. And I think this is where, you know, a lot of the civic sector can come into play and it'll depend a lot on their ability to get the message out that political polarization goes hand in hand with the immense amount of economic inequality that we are already seeing now and that's going to be exacerbated um, as the fallout of the pandemic continues. All right. So we have time for one more for one question for each of you. And I want to ask each of you, and it's a personal one. So you're all faculty at UC Berkeley. Um, you don't just do polls. There are things you study and you write about. Last 10 weeks have been extraordinary. And we start with you, Eric. What are you interested in studying right now? What sort of raw material are you seeing? And what are you sort of dying to know more about? Eric. Well, I mean, I think that... Um, the big concern that many of us have had is the sort of future of American democracy. Can it function amid this, you know, deeply polarized situation in which one party is really now putting, you know, challenging. So this is going to be an immense stress test for our electoral system and democracy more generally. So seeing, you know, are we able to hold a fair, free election in which everybody has the opportunity to vote. That's going to be a huge challenge. Hector, same question. What do you, what do you, what's really got your interest here in general? And what do you want to be studying and learning in the months ahead? Um, I was fortunate enough to get new funding for COVID projects uh, focused on telehealth implementation in federally qualified health centers, the uh, clinics that care for the poor and underserved in the state. And this is a game changer uh, for them in the positive direction in some ways. Uh, there'd been a lot of limitations prior to COVID on um, using telehealth. And we know uh, low-income individuals have opportunity costs when they go to get care. They have to get out of employment, get childcare, all these things. But 
uh, reimbursement and payment had been limiting up to this point. And so one opportunity that COVID presents is uh, changing the healthcare system, particularly for the low-income patients uh, and changing the what gets paid for uh, in terms of those things. So I'm really following that those issues very closely. Great, Chris, thank you. And Christina, you had the first word. We'll give you the last word. You're, it, what's, what's got your interest? What are you going to be studying and delving into in the months ahead? Uh, well, before the pandemic hit, I uh, was really interested in California and what's going on in sort of, you know, as economic inequality reach, you know, meets with, um, you know, the increase in racial diversity across the state. And so in what ways that is playing out for our political future. And as COVID hit, um, COVID is the new normal. And so I'm interested in hearing what impact has COVID had on our ideas of sort of what the political future is here in the state. Um, I've got uh, with a colleague of mine, a sample of about 60 uh, Bay Area residents in sort of the upper working class. And we'll be following them now for about two years to see not only how did COVID impact them now, but how are how is the fallout of the pandemic uh, impacting the working class in the state over time? So I want to thank the three of you for a really interesting conversation. I can't wait to see the next poll. For those of you who've been watching today, you can do a simple Google search for IGS, IGS in Berkeley. See past polls they've done, dive deeper into the data behind this most recent poll. Um, and again, uh, We'll have future Berkeley Conversations events. The Check out the webpage. And in the meantime, be well, stay safe, and by all means, keep your distance. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.